would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our salvation. Amen. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this request, our Lord Jesus is is instructing us to pray for God's kingdom to flourish and grow here on earth so that earth will become more like heaven in the way that we live and in the way that we treat each other. Wouldn't it be nice for the murder rate to plummet to zero? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to trust your fellow citizens? Wouldn't it be nice to work out your differences with your neighbors without becoming angry? Wouldn't it be nice to live life without ever being suspicious of another person? Wouldn't it be nice to have everyone honor the Lord and honor um, each other as we seek to uh, treat each other as we would have ourselves be treated? This is, this is what this phrase is telling us in the Lord's prayer when it instructs us to pray that God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. It really would make our world a much more wonderful place to live. Well, God has a strategy for causing His kingdom to grow here on earth. Although quite a bit of nastiness and rancor permeates our world, Um, Western culture has grown and has thrived as a result of God's kingdom expanding and pushing back against the injustice and or injustice and unrighteousness that that permeated the entire world before Jesus Christ came uh, and lived and died and was resurrected and ascended to the Father's right hand. In our sense, in terms of our Western culture, our sense of personal liberty and freedom has grown from the Bible's insistence that God alone is the Lord of the conscience. Our sense of justice and equality, regardless of race or gender or social status, um, was first introduced by Moses in the book of Exodus. And it was reaffirmed by Jesus. Uh, The spread of true gospel Christianity has brought with it more orderliness, more justice, and more happiness everywhere that it has become rooted and has grown. Now obviously, there's a lot more room for the growth of more orderliness and justice and happiness here in our own community or even in our own homes or our own individual lives. And so we continue to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But as we pray this prayer, it behooves us to ask, what is God's strategy for growing His kingdom here on earth? I would suspect that most would give The easy answer that uh, God causes His kingdom to grow on an um, individual by individual by converting people 
to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and become his disciple? And that's the correct answer. God's kingdom grows as the gospel is proclaimed and as people come to know Jesus Christ. So then we should ask, what is God's strategy for converting people to Jesus Christ? I think this requires a little more thought. Rightly so, we instinctively believe that having people come to church is a positive step in building God's kingdom. Um, Therefore, we have a visitor Sunday. Some churches try and design their worship styles, uh, their worship and music styles, to become more appealing to people uh, who who typically do not come to church. Some churches conduct a marketing study on how to appeal to the community uh, in which the church exists. Some churches believe that an impressive church building and programs will draw people in. Some churches go in an opposite direction by going outside the church to emphasize social justice. But none of these things in themselves has any power to convert even one person to Jesus Christ. As important as these things might be in, connect, in being a connecting point between the church and the community, no one has ever been converted by an effective marketing strategy or by an impressive church building. Only Jesus Christ can convert a person to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ is the Savior. Only the Savior can actually save a person from their sins. Jesus chooses to bring people to himself through the proclamation of the gospel, which is the good news of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Unfortunately, many people try to make shortcuts with the gospel. Some people appeal to a person's sense of guilt to urge them to become a convert to Jesus Christ. Some appeal to a person's fear of punishment and judgment and hell to urge a person to come to Jesus Christ. Still others appeal to the promise of happiness and fulfillment to urge a person to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I am here to tell you this morning that those kinds of appeals are cheap imitations you were to turn them upside down, you would see Made in China stamped on the bottom. So then what is the proper appeal that we should urge a person, urge upon a person so that they might uh, turn and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior? Well, verse 19 gives us the answer. Before I read verse 19, it's important to note that the love we express here in the context of verse 19, is love for God. So verse 19, we love because He first loved us. Or we could paraphrase this verse to read, we love God because He first loved us. The proper and biblical appeal that we should urge upon a person to turn to Jesus Christ is the love of God. In the remainder of this sermon, I intend to turn this one phrase in verse 19 uh, around and over. I want us to examine it like a multifaceted diamond that we might see all its sparkling beauty. 
um, as we uh, look at this glorious verse. So to begin our examination, I want to look at verse 19 theologically. We're not going to get real deep into the theological underbrush. Uh, The theological point is simply that God's love for us precedes our love for God. God told the Israelites in Jeremiah 31 verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. In other words, He loved us from everlasting to everlasting. If He has loved us from everlasting, then His love of for us, precedes our love for Him. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Psalm 103 verse 17 says, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Because God loved us from eternity. God loved us before we were born. But it's it's more than that. God loved us before we had any desire to be loved by Him. God loved us when we were His enemies. Romans 5 verse 8 and also verse 10 says, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. The Bible says, and we prove it by our lives every day, that we do not seek God's love. Uh, Rather, He in love seeks us. We wander from Him. We resist Him. We prove ourselves to be unworthy of His love. We do nothing that could present us worthy of His love or His mercy. We've never, ever, even in our best moments, done anything that has made us worthy of His love. God loved us before we loved Him. And this is good news for us. If God's love were based on our love for Him... It would mean that God's love for us is conditioned on our love. But our love is fickle. Our love is often motivated by our love for ourselves and our love for our own happiness. Rather than love for other people. This is counterfeit love. It is not really love at all. So if God's love is based on or conditioned on our faults or our faulty love, what does it say about God's love for us? It would suggest that God's love is conditional and it is changing if it's based on our love for Him. But of course, God's love is not conditional or or changing. God's love for us, being prior to our love for Him, precedes our seeking God's love for us, being prior to our love, precedes our repentance or our faith. God's love for us, being prior to our love, precedes our devotion. God's love for us is the great and singular cause of our love for God. 
when we, I'm sorry, when God in love comes to us. He doesn't find us loving Him. In fact, and this is important, when God in love comes to us, He doesn't expect anything of us. All He expects is that we're His enemies. All He expects is that we are going to be running away from Him. He does the pursuing. He sought us out in love while we were His enemies, while we were yet sinners. After seeking us, I'm sorry, after His seeking after us is all of grace because it is His love alone that does the seeking. We are only responding to His love. Our text says, we love God because He first loved us. Next, I want us to examine uh, verse 19 psychologically. We examined it uh, theologically, psychologically. Because God loved us before we ever loved Him, we can never out His love. We no longer need to fear punishment or God's wrath. If God has loved us unconditionally with an everlasting love, then we can be confident that He will be that he, he will love us on the day of judgment. We no longer need to fear that God is the, the get you God with His hand raised, ready to get you the moment you get out of the line. Look at verses 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And then he reminds us, as we've already said, we love because he first loved us. Because God loved you, before you ever considered loving him, you can know that your relationship with him is only a relationship of belonging, of acceptance, of, of security. Verses 17 and 18 that I just read are included in the Bible because God wants you to be confident of His love for you. There are many who look to their outward circumstances to, to determine whether God loves them. God must not love me because my business is struggling. God must not love me because my marriage is suffering. God must not love me because my children don't love me. God must not love me because my pain is debilitating. God must not love me because I'm suffering under some kind of uh, disease or ongoing health problems. Brothers and sisters, God's love does not fluctuate with our wildly changing circumstances. The opposite is true. Knowing you are secure in God's unfluctuating love means that you can rest secure in your changing circumstances. God never promises us that we're going to be happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. Rather, He promises us that He will walk through, He will walk through our difficulties with us, that He'll carry us if need be. I cannot tell you 
how blessed I have been while trusting God when I've been tempted to take matters into my own hands because I've fallen into some kind of trial or, or some kind of circumstances has come up quickly and unavoidably. And I think, if I can just take control of it, then I'll be okay. And then I remember, God's in control. God loves me. All my big problems fit very nicely into the hand of God. And everything seems to shrink in perspective. All my problems, my entire existence, my future, my past, my family, my congregation, all fits in God's hands. And I can trust in Him. I can take a deep breath. Lord, You love me so much that You went to the cross for me. I will trust in You. Being confident of God's love uh, for me gives me great confidence in how I live my life. Great confidence in God's love for you will give you great confidence in how you live your life. Even if you can't see the way forward. I want to take a brief practical look at verse 19. Looked at it theologically, psychologically. I want to look at it practically. Because many wonder if God loves them. They take an honest look at their sins and at the sinful motives of of their heart. And they say, how could God love someone like me? I dare say there are many here this morning who have this secret conversation in their own soul weekly or maybe even daily. If I were to ask that person whether they loved God, undoubtedly they would say, yes, I love Him. That's why it breaks my heart so much when I sin against Him. And that's why they're concerned about their sin. They hate their sin because God hates their sin. They want to be righteous because their God is righteous. And here's where this verse gets very practical. Your love for God is by necessity... Only a response to His love. You would not love God if God did not first love you. The very fact that you love God means that He first loved you and He drew you to Himself. If you you love God, you need not fear that He wavers in His love for you. Lastly, I want to look at this verse, um, this verse 19, soteriology, uh, soteriologically. This word soteriological, it's, just, it's a theological term uh, for salvation. Verse 19 declares that our salvation is by grace alone. God took all the initiative in securing our salvation. By definition, it is all of grace. Because we were not loving God, we were not seeking Him. He loved us while we were still sinners. All you can do is respond to His love. All you can do is receive His love. I get frustrated when I hear of uh, churches putting extra conditions on salvation. Some churches say that you've got to walk an aisle or pray a prayer. Others say you've got to be baptized. Others say you've got to attain to a level some certain level of 
sorrow and insincerity. It is my firm belief that many non-believers are not rejecting the true gospel, but they are rejecting a cheap imitation. The true gospel comes to you wrapped in God's love, and it asks you to receive the gospel just as you are. Where you are right now is where the gospel comes to you. You don't have to prepare yourself to receive it. We don't take a bath, or we don't get cleaned up to take a bath. Putting the cart before the horse. It is impossible to adequately prepare yourself for such a great mercy from God. God simply comes to you in His love, in His love for you. And He asks you to receive it. You can receive God, or you can receive God's salvation right now, even before this sermon is finished. God's love is an overflowing fountain of His grace and His salvation that once received will spring forth in your life love that will then flow back to Him in gratitude and delight. All that rain that's falling on South Carolina and North Carolina, it didn't simply come from the clouds. It came from the ocean. Went up to the clouds. It's raining like crazy on South Carolina and North Carolina. It'll hit the, the Santee River and, and other rivers and it'll flow back into the ocean. So also when we receive God's love and the ocean or the fountain of His love washes into our life, we'll become loving people and we'll love God and that love will flow back toward Him. Just think, when you receive God's love, His kingdom takes root and begins to grow in your life. Spiritual fruit starts to blossom and uh, spring forth. Your life will become an oasis of righteousness and kindness and love in our spiritually dry culture. God's love will overflow from your life into the lives of those around you. It's axiomatic. You can't receive God's love without you then also becoming a loving person. You're going to love the saints. We love God and we love others because He first loved us. Look at verse 20. I didn't have David read verse 20. But verse 20 says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, we become loving people. It is axiomatic. We're going to love our brothers and sisters in the household of faith. In conclusion, God's love is not some willy-nilly emotion. His love is substantial. God is the Lord of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the same chapter says that God is love. He has given us the definition of the love that He gives to us. The definition of this love is found in verses 13 through 16. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified 
that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Verse 13 says, He has given us His Spirit. Verse 14 says, He has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. God's love for us is centered in Himself. God, the triune God, gives us real love. He gives us the best love. The best way that He can love us is giving us Himself. Verse 14, God has given us His Son. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He has sent the Son into our world for us. We need saving. So He sent His Son to be the Savior. He sent the Son. He sent His own beloved Son to bear the wrath that we deserve to bear. He who knew no sin... became sin for us on the cross that He might bear our punishment. Our sins must be accounted for. But God so loved us that He sent His Son to be accountable for our sins. Then Christ, after suffering the wrath of man, after suffering the wrath of God Almighty on the cross, He went to the grave. In our place. Three days he rose gloriously for our salvation. Verse 14. He gave us his son. He gave us himself. The triune God gave us himself. Verse 13 says that the father has given us of his spirit. The father sent the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead. To meet us where we are. And to draw us by the father's love. To Jesus Christ. He gives us faith to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ. He gives us all of Christ's benefits. He gives us adoption into God's family. He gives us His righteousness. He gives us eternal life. He gives us fellowship with the Father. And then the Holy Spirit makes our heart His home. God's love is substantial. You must receive it. As he offers it. And he offers himself to you in love. Through his son. But once you receive his love. It's glorious. Let's pray together. Our father as we have considered. This verse. That we love. Because you have first loved us. I pray that you would increase our love for you. And I pray that you would also increase our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Increase our love for our neighbors, our fellow citizens. And uh, for our fellow human beings who live throughout the world. Father, I ask that you would make us loving people. Because we have a loving Savior 
who so loved us that he went to the cross for us. We ask this in his name. Amen.